morning, church. Great to see you all. Welcome to Union Chapel this morning. Thanks for enduring. Hey, I've checked the weather forecast. Next Sunday, Easter, mostly sunny, 67. Yeah, that's what I mean. So weather's going to be perfect next weekend, and it's going to be a beautiful opportunity to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus at Emmons together. So you have those invitation cards, as Pastor Cole was mentioning. Here's what you do. Take it the next step. These are people you know, associates, friends, neighbors. Hand them the invitation card and say, I'll pick you up at 9. Be by your house at 9 o'clock. Pick you up. Some of you will be free after the service. Promise to take them out for dinner, for lunch, after, after service. And this will just eliminate another barrier. And so you can do that, and we will fill up Emmons Auditorium. We're going to have a party. It's going to be something, so you don't want to miss. It's going to be fantastic. Looking forward to it. As you know, in this uh, Lenten season now, as we work up to this week, Holy Week, and I hope you'll stop by the chapel. It's a come-and-go uh, experience. You can come anytime between 11 and 7 on Friday. Serve yourself communion. It'll be very meaningful. And we'll prepare our hearts for Easter Sunday. In the meantime, we've been talking about the last words of Jesus on the cross, and today we want to take it just the next step, the the next words that he said after the resurrection, as we study this fascinating story of these two men, a man named Cleopas and an unnamed friend, who are grief-stricken because of the death of Jesus, and they are walking from Jerusalem seven miles to a small town called Emmaus, the walk to Emmaus. And we'll see what we can learn about this important sequence. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. I'm going to read for us verses 13 to 17. And our custom is to stand to honor God's Word. And so as you're able, thank you for doing that. Here's verse 13. Now that same day, this is Sunday, Resurrection Day, on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you're walking along? Hey, what are you guys talking about? Hey, what's up? What are you guys doing? And he enjoins the walk. Now, what God inspires today, meet us along the journey of our walk as well, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks so much. First point on the outline, you're in the garden. This is the garden uh, cemetery. This is the garden tomb area. It's the first Sunday, the first Easter, and you're in the garden. Jesus' body had been taken down from the cross, hastily buried in a borrowed tomb. The disciples are in hiding, and now a woman, in fact, two women, come to the tomb. They're the first there to arrive. There is Mary of Magdala, and there is the other Mary, as she is described. And they are the first to realize that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Mary Magdala encounters Jesus. She thinks he's the gardener, the caretaker. And She engages in conversation with him. She's looking for Jesus' body. It's gone, she thinks. 
been taken, been stolen. What have you done with the body, she asks. Jesus asks her a couple of questions. Why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? When she finally says, look, where is he? Then he says her name. And he says, Mary. And when she hears him say her name, she realizes who he is and she, she rushes for him. He goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. Not so fast. You know, not yet. I'm not yet glorified. I haven't returned to the Father. Don't, don't, don't be messing with me right now. And so, and so she is overcome with joy. And this is an amazing moment because of all the people that he could have revealed himself to first, here is a woman who is a broken person. The Bible says that in Mark's gospel that out of her had been cast seven demons. So this is a woman with a sordid past. She has a broken past. She has been damaged by life. She has made poor choices. Her brokenness has led her down this path. And probably she is an outcast to most people in her culture, perhaps everyone, until Jesus meets her. And Jesus sees in this woman value and sees in this woman potential. And he delivers her from her, from her spiritual problems and she begins the road to healing. And she follows Jesus. She becomes a disciple of Jesus. So she's with Jesus a lot. And her life has been restored, and she's been given purpose and meaning in life. It's, very easy. it's a very powerful moment that this is the woman who first realizes Jesus has been raised from the dead. Years ago, I was invited to uh, do Vesper services twice a month in a local nursing home. And I would always take a pianist with me because I learned very quickly that the residents in the nursing home loved to sing the old-time hymns. And when I would gather 12 or 15 of these people in a little room with a pianist, we had hymnals there. And so we would do a little hymn sing before I gave a little devotional during the service. And I would ask for requests. What hymns do you want to sing? And every single time, this went on for two years, twice a month for two years, every single time I asked them for a request of a hymn, the same hymn was requested first. Anyone want to take a guess? Yeah, you hear Amazing Grace, you, you hear Victory in Jesus, and the right answer was In the Garden, where C. Austin Miles in 1912 penned this spectacular hymn, which apparently has become especially meaningful the older you become in life. The verses of the first of this hymn says, He speaks, and the sound of his voice is so sweet the birds hush their singing. And the melody that he gave to me within my heart is ringing. Think of Mary now with Jesus in the garden that first day. And he walks with me. And he talks with me. And he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Isn't that beautiful? The next words, according to Matthew's account, were addressed to the other Mary when he says to her, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. And again, these two women, the boys aren't there because they're still in hiding. But the women are courageous enough to make an appearance in the garden tomb. And so Jesus reveals to them, 
These are folks who aren't allowed, these women aren't allowed to be primary leaders in their day and culture. They're not allowed to be rabbis or priests or prophets. And yet Jesus reveals himself first to them. And so not only does he reveal himself first, but he commissions these women first to go and tell. You're going to be my first ambassadors as a resurrected Savior. And so we see in this all kinds of messaging that Jesus says to all of us and to any of us, no matter our past, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, God will meet you right where you are. He'll meet you there. There's a lie in our world, in our culture today, that says you are a victim. You are victimized by your past. You are victimized by current circumstances. And if you live your life as a victim, that's how somehow you get the empathy and the attention you need. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus looks at us and says, I will not have you victimized. I will not have you live your life as a victim because you are not your past. You are not what you have done in your past. You are not what others have done to you in your past. I have a hopeful and a, and a faith-filled future for you. The only limitations in your life are limitations I place on you, and those are virtually non-existent. I want to pull you up, give you hope, sh uh, share my healing grace with you, forgive and heal your past, strengthen your present, and empower you with a hopeful future. That's the message of God to each one of us. So be encouraged by that. So we now move from in the garden, same day, now we're on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus now begins appearing to his disciples later that day. And here are these two guys, Cleopas and this unnamed man, and they're walking shoulder to shoulder these seven miles to Emmaus. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus and talking to each other about all these things. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. That's interesting, isn't it? First, Mary of Magdala doesn't recognize him in the garden, and now on the road to Emmaus, they don't recognize him. We're left to speculate why that is, why, why they can't perceive it's Jesus. Maybe it's simply that God won't allow them to understand. Maybe it's because their minds can't get around the idea that a guy they've seen dead is now back alive. Maybe there's something unusual about a glorified body and it doesn't seem like the same body as it was before and probably it's not. Can I just, let me just say this about the eternal kingdom of God. Listen to me. Whatever we think it is, however good we believe it to be, listen, it's better than we think it's going to be. And so that could be it. And, but what we know is they can't perceive that it's Jesus. And they're discussing these things as they're walking along. And then the last phrase, this is from our text, they stood still, their faces downcast. William Barclay in his uh, famous commentary in the New Testament took this phrase and he said, they stood with faces twisted with grief. Twisted with grief. Not just their faces twisted, but indeed their hearts as well. They have lost what they hope to be the deliverer of Israel. They think he is dead. All of their dreams, all of their hopes have been dashed. And they are filled with grief, despair, disappointment. And Jesus now comes up to meet them. Meet them right where they are. And by the way, this is more good news for you, friend. Jesus will always meet you right where you are. Doesn't matter how far you've strayed. 
doesn't matter the circumstances you may be in a glorious mountaintop season of life, Jesus will meet you there. You may be in the lowest place. You may be in the darkest place. You may, you may be in the most confusing place. Jesus will meet you there. Well, you don't understand, Pastor. I'm in this bad place because I'm messed up. I made all these bad choices. I knew I shouldn't, but I did anyway. And so I'm in a mess. You don't think God's going to meet me in this self-induced mess, do you? He'll especially meet you in that one. Because, can we say this out loud? Jesus is not surprised when we mess up. He knows us better than we know ourselves. They go, Greg messed up? What took him so long? Everybody knows he's going to mess up. So Jesus will meet you right where you are. You can live in denial about that. And you'll only postpone the amazing work that God wants to do in your life by his grace, his unmerited favor. Or you can open your life to him and realize that he will indeed, sincerely, authentically come to you right where you are and meet you there. You can say yes to Jesus today and your life will never be the same because he will meet you right at the point of your need. It's good preaching right there. So Barclay says... They stood with faces twisted with grief. And in that kind of context, can we all say that each one of us one day will walk the road to Emmaus? The road of pain, the road of grief, the road of disappointment, the road of despair. All of us will walk the road of, to Emmaus. I have several letters that I've kept over the years. One letter in my office, in my file, is from a woman who was a parishioner in our church years ago. And she wrote me, and it was just, I think, a means of the expression of her own pain and grief. It was an opportunity, almost therapeutically, to express some of these concerns. And her letter referenced the fact that her 20-year-old son would be celebrating his birthday in prison. And part of her letter included words like, we are so sad for the loss of our dreams for our son, the pain of seeing him in prison, the knowledge that he was making so many mistakes and there was nothing that we seemed we could do about it. She, she was walking her road to Emmaus. I have another letter from a good friend who attended our church for many years, and he and his wife relocated to another city. But in the course of his career, his professional life, he was an upper-level management person in one of the local businesses, and he lost his job, and he was in his 50s. And for the next 24 months, he was unable to secure another job. And so he wrote to me, and he talked about his grief and his sadness and his confusion about being unemployed for all those days and weeks and months, his discouragement and his disappointment. This was his road to Emmaus, and he was walking it. These two disciples now, faces twisted in grief, are walking along, talking about their confusion and the, the events of the weekend, and Jesus now meets them right where they are. He comes to them as a stranger. It's interesting, isn't it? I don't know about you, but if, I, if I'm a guy who's just died, indeed for the sins of the world, and now I'm raised from the dead three days later, I have to say, this is why God didn't choose me, I, I have to say that I would be a little more out there. I couldn't resist the temptation to say, I'm back. But he's subtle, he's sensitive, he's careful 
with these men. He, he enjoins them on the walk. What are you guys talking about? And begins the conversation. And he begins to answer their questions. And he begins to tell them about his own life. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he unfolds and unpacks the redemptive story of God's plan, including the Messiah who would have to come and give his life for the sins of the world. And, and they're hearing these words. They, they later shared notes with each other and said, was your heart burning inside of you just like mine was when he was telling us these stories? And, they, and his friend would say, yes, my, I, was, I, was, I was feeling intensely something that was happening to me. And they walk all the way to Emmaus together and Jesus is ready to part from them and they say, no, please stay with us. Stay with us and have a meal. And Jesus agrees. And so they sit down. And when the food is delivered, they ask Jesus, would you bless the food? Would you pray over the meal? And Jesus says, I will do it. And he simply then uses these words. Luke records them. And he said, he took bread, he blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Now, that, that's familiar phraseology, isn't it? This is, this is Last Supper talk. And as soon as Jesus took the bread and blessed it and broke it, their eyes were open. And they saw exactly who he was. And Jesus now vanishes from their midst. This is a very, very powerful, powerful moment. Let me ask you a question today. How would you describe yourself? Are you spiritual? Are you a spiritual person? How about this? Are, are you religious? Are you non-religious? Are, are you a Christian? Are you a seeker of God? Well, I'm a seeker of God. Or I'm a seeker of truth. Whatever the truth is, that's what I want to know. No matter where the road to truth leads me, that's where I'll go. A seeker of truth. How about this? Are you interested in Jesus? Well, as a matter of fact, I am interested in Jesus. You know, say more. That's one of the reasons I'm in church. I'm trying to figure this out, sort this out. Well, let me just say that in this story, with these two men, shoulder to shoulder, walking to Emmaus, there are ways that we learn from them how to actually experience the presence of Jesus. One of them is this. You might want to write this down. Jesus comes to our lives as a stranger. That's in the text, isn't it? They're walking along. Here's a guy they don't recognize. Enjoying them in the walk. Jesus sometimes comes to us as a stranger, and that's an important point because sometimes God reveals himself to us in people we don't even know. 29 years ago, my wife Beth was diagnosed with breast cancer. This was a very scary thing for us, a very sobering thing for us. Beth's mother had died of this disease at the age of 39. She had a first cousin die at 33. This uh, genetic mutation uh, works through their family, and they become susceptible. And at 35 years old, our boys at the time were 12 and 5 years old. It was a very, very serious time for us. And we were diagnosed just before Christmas of 1989. We decided not to tell our family about this diagnosis until after Christmas. So three days after Christmas, uh, Beth went in for surgery, the first of her treatment. And this was here at Ball and Muncie. And the, sur the surgery was in the morning that day. Friends were going to watch our boys out at our home. And I was with Beth all day. And I was with her until about 9 o'clock on that evening of surgery. And I decided I would go home and check on our boys. And as I was driving 
toward home, it took me past the church. Now remember, it's 9 o'clock at night. The parking lot lights in our main lot out here were on. The lights in our sanctuary were on. And I saw about 30 cars still parked in the parking lot. And as I drove by, I realized exactly what was happening. That there were all of these people who had assembled at the church here. And for this whole day, they had been praying for us and praying for Beth. It is a sight that I will never forget. There are times, there are times when, when I feel like giving up or giving in or you know, just plain quitting. There are times when I feel like maybe it's my time's up here and time to move on to some other place. And that image of all those people praying that day uh, always comes up in my mind. And I think one of the reasons that we're still here after 40 years, 40 years, is because of just how genuine the care from you to us has been. And we think to ourselves, where else could we find such loving, careful people? And so what we have discovered in our lives is that you can experience the presence of Jesus through the lives of others, not just people you know, but even strangers. And over these years, as Beth has faced this challenge and beaten this challenge with her health, we've had numerous times when people we know and love have approached us and said out loud, we're with you, we're praying for you. And there have been many times as well when people we don't know who are perfect strangers to us, who have walked up to us and said, we know about what you're dealing with. We want you to know we're praying for you. If you're a seeker of God today, could I encourage you just to open your mind and open your thoughts to the idea that God will reveal himself, even the presence of Christ in your life through people you know and people you don't know at all. Simple acts of kindness, simple acts of courtesy and prayer can make a difference in your life. So be aware of that. Be open to that because God speaks to us in those ways. Here's another thing we learned from this story that Jesus will reveal his presence to us when we serve others. When we serve others. Now, this is almost uh, counterintuitive, but it's, it's so true and it is so real and it's so right. These two men invited Jesus to dinner. And so this was an invitation. And of course, we know the teaching of Jesus is whenever you feed the hungry or give water to the thirsty or clothe the naked or visit people in prison or people who are sick, Jesus said, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. And so we have discovered over the years, I mean, this is just an axiom that we know to be true, not just in, in theory, but indeed in our practice and experience that when you give your life away to someone else, that it's actually more of a blessing to you than it is to the one who receives. It is more blessed to give than it is to receive. That's not, that's not just a clever saying. There, that's actually rooted in truth. And so it's always stunning to me, amazing to me when I observe other Christian people or even other Christian churches who are so close-fisted and so closed-hearted. And God provides resources for such people and such churches, but they won't give it away. They won't bless anybody with it. And it's just puzzling to me. It's shocking to me. Because, and this is one of the, one of the 
One of the drums that I regularly beat when I'm addressing other leaders and, and other Christian leaders, that the more generous you are, the more careful you are, the more servant-like you are, it's actually more like Jesus you are. And the more like Jesus you are, the better it is for you. And the blessing of God and the favor of God and the provision of God flows to you when you have open hands and an open heart. And so this is what's happening to these guys. They invite Jesus, and they're caring for him, and he reveals himself to them. And so we learn this lesson. He reveals himself as we serve others. And then a third thing, you might want to write this down. Again, in the context of these guys, they're sitting at this meal now. Jesus comes in the breaking of bread. Now, Luke, I think, wants us to see the Eucharist, the Holy Communion, he wants us to see that. I mean, he uses that phrase that Jesus took bread, he broke it, and he blessed it. This is, the, this is like the words of the liturgy. And so we identify with Holy Communion, but there's more at work here. It's not merely the sacrament of the Eucharist that we find the presence of Christ, but we also find it in the communal worship of God. When we gather together corporately to worship God like we are in this moment right now, we experience the presence of God. I love the, I love the, uh, the phrase that the Irish Celts developed many centuries ago. They said, when, when we gather together, when we gather together in, in public worship, we create thin places. Thin places. And by that they meant that when we worship God, the, the distance between us and God narrows, 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 until it's very thin, becomes a thin place, like a portal through which... We experience God's presence. God's presence is close to us. And so if you stop and think about it, maybe some of you have rationalized this, why do I get up on a, on a messy Sunday morning like this and I'm, exa I'm exhausted from a busy week and I have other things I could be doing, if not just simply rest, why would I get up and drag myself to church? The reason that you do it is because you know there's benefit involved. There's, there's nobility that comes to your life. And the reason you feel nobility in the corporate worship as a result is because you experience the presence of God here. There's something about praying the prayers together and singing the songs and hearing God's word and offering gifts and experiencing God's people. All of these things contribute to the presence of God. It's a thin place. We're very close to God when we do this together. And it's in keeping with God's plan and desire for us. Don't you love that? So what you want to do in your life in general is just create as many thin places as you can. Run into so many people. This, how many times this has happened to me? I see someone, I say, hey, how's it going? I see them on the street. I see them, in, see them in the store. Uh, gee, you know, I haven't seen you for a while. Where are you going to church? Because, you know, I would see them here and then I don't see them here. Where are you going to church? And folks, you know, then folks, it's uncomfortable for them because, you know, they roll their eyes, blah, blah, blah. Isn't it sad that people get uncomfortable? And <laughs> where are you going? To, well, I'm not really going anywhere. Your wife's not going anywhere. Uh, your kids aren't being exposed to the thin places. No. Now, it's moments like this you have to understand. You know, I have a reverend in front of my name. I don't wear the title very well. I'm just one of those guys who. I, when you're around me, you go, he's a reverend. Because I, reverence is a great virtue, and I admire people who are. I'm just, I'm just not. And so I have a lot of growing to do. So when I encounter people like that, 
who aren't creating thin places in their life intentionally, they're creating thick places. By their foolishness and their carelessness and how they're so easily distracted from important things, the main things. So they build thick places. How are your children doing? And if they're not in church, they're not in the children's program, they're not learning about Jesus, they're not, you're not teaching them. Who's teaching them about Jesus, the ways and will of God? Well, they're, you know, they're getting passing grades in school and, and they're good in sports. Seriously? That's, that's the goal? Really? So I'm going to be in the, in the supermarket where you going, well, we're not really going to church anywhere anymore. See, I have to look down at my what would Jesus do bracelet so I don't strangle them. And leave them laying in the aisle. If you're new. I know, I know this is shocking. Let's take a deep breath. It'll be okay. And I just want to body block them, you know, through the Charmin display. Just knock stuff over. What's the matter with you? You want to create thin places. And corporate worship and private worship, this is how you do it. This is how you experience, I'm a seeker of truth. I'm interested in Jesus. Well, then create thin places. And God will reveal himself to you, just like he did to those men on the road to Emmaus. Well, here's the last thought. Jesus says to them, uh, Right after this, Jesus appears in a home where the disciples have assembled. And apparently a glorified body has some capacity to, to travel. Um, a glorified body apparently has some abilities, capacities. And so Jesus, before the ascension, would actually appear. Like in this case, the boys are in a room, kind of a darkened room, probably got the door locked, they're still afraid. And Jesus just appears in the room. <laughs> there he is. It's, it's got to be a little shocking. So Jesus says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. And this is precisely what the resurrected Christ brings to us. We find in him our peace. Now listen carefully to this statement. I want to put it on the screen. I want you to get this, take this home. The resurrection of Jesus didn't change the circumstances of those first disciples. It means folks are still after him. Folks still wanted to accuse them. Folks still wanted to kill them. Didn't change their circumstances. But it did change their perspective on their circumstances. It, it took those defeated and disillusioned disciples and gave them hope and gave them joy and gave them peace. Changed their perspective on the world. Now, there's no doubt. We know this when we look back. There's no doubt that these guys were transformed. They were completely changed. When they laid eyes, physical eyes on a resurrected Jesus, they were never the same again. And you say, well, I can understand that. And history and tradition suggest to us that all 12 of those original apostles all went to a martyr's death, save one of them, John. So they all died a premature death. They all went to their demise. They were they were. Stoned, they were burned, they were crucified, 
They, they, they suffered a martyr's death. And every last one of them, from the day of Pentecost all the way through the end of their lives, would stand up in front of people and say to them, do with us whatever you want. Yeah, kill us if you must. But we have to tell you, the one you crucified, we have seen raised from the dead. He is, in fact, the Son of God. He is the King of glory. He is the Savior of the world. And He is the hope for your life in eternity. And all of those guys gave everything because they believed it and they knew it to be true. So they went from where they were throughout the whole world proclaiming the good news. They were arrested. They were beaten. They were abused. They were thrown in prison. None of that dissuaded them. None of that stopped them because they had encountered the living Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul summarized it perfectly in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, when he writes, death has been swallowed up in victory. So friends, let me just conclude by saying, when you're on the road to Emmaus, those moments of fear, your times of adversity, even to the point where you will walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you need not fear anything because God, the resurrected Christ, he is with you. He is with you. And you can take confidence in that and be at peace over that. Amen? Let's pause and pray. Lord, we do feel peace when we trust that you are with us. We feel hope when we trust that you have triumphed over the grave. So breathe on us your Holy Spirit and grant us the power and courage to live in this faith, to love caring for others, inviting them to follow you because you are our crucified and risen Savior. And help us today, help us all, especially those who are seeking, those who are curious about Jesus. Help us to find and realize this transforming influence that a meaningful personal relationship with you is possible. And Lord, just one more time, thank you for reminding us through the life of Mary Magdalene that our past is not our future, that you are a God of healing and of restoring grace. So meet each one of us this day at the point of our need. We pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Would you stand with us?